0: Please open your Bibles again with me this morning to 1 Peter in chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 as we press on with our, our exposition through the epistle of Peter, which has followed an exposition of the life of Peter from the Gospels. And This Labor Day weekend finds us coming to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, and then in our Lord's providence, we have scheduled in a break from this series. Uh... To preach another series called the Shepherd's Reach, which will start soon, and it'll go, it'll go into the fall um, as we continue to move towards the revision of our constitution and bylaws, and uh, we need to hear what God's word says on a few issues before we have a conversation as a church family. Very important series coming up, so we'll be breaking after chapter three, verse seven, and resuming our our series uh, several uh, months from now with verse eight of chapter 3 which is a—it's actually a very neat breaking point, convenient for us. Have you ever heard any of the jokes? I don't think they're justified. They're jokes about men needing instructions. Right? Us, my species gets a, takes a big hit on the, what we do or don't do with instructions. I remember <clears throat> Do you remember your first road trip by yourself with your driver's license? Remember that? Think back to that. I remember my son Jared's first road trip by himself. We lived in, right on the border of, of Virginia Beach, Virginia, and Chesapeake, Virginia. They're on the eastern seaboard. And we have my wife's sister and her family live in the Raleigh area of North Carolina. About a three and a half hour drive. And my son wanted to do that trip by himself. And, uh, and what he had in his hand was <clears throat> an iPhone with the directions app, right? And so he put their address in and, and he took off and we were praying him on his trip uh, as he drove down into the Carolinas and he, he, he made a three and a half hour trip into just over three hours. No complications. He just did what the phone said to do. So I, I, you know, I, I remember that, and I remember, against the backdrop of Jared's story, my first solo trip with my newly minted driver's license. My trip was from Clarkston, Michigan, to the Corning area of New York, going through Canada at Port Huron, coming back through at Niagara Falls, and then going down into the country near the Corning area. Uh, not far from Rochester, New York. That was normally a seven-hour trip. I didn't have an iPhone. I had handwritten instructions. I had a fold-out map. And I did so well on my first solo trip through two international checkpoints as a teenager that I took a seven-hour trip and I made it in 12 hours. (laughs) I had worried parents on one end of the trip and then worried sister and her husband on the other end of the trip where I was going to visit, and I really managed to mess that up. But did I stop for instructions one time, even as a 16-year-old? Absolutely not. I'd been trained better than that. Someone once said, I'm sure it was a guy who said this, Christopher Columbus didn't need directions, and neither do I. I don't know who, what guy said that, and I don't know what woman who it was that said this statement. Men say they wish women came with instructions. What's the point of that? Have you ever seen a man read the instructions? You know. So yeah, there's a lot of grief about following simple instructions. But my species, the male species, we like we like everything to be in bullet points. We like, we like one cover photo, one, one overview of the compound. We like abbreviated details. We want to know what our mission objective is and then leave us alone. We all think we are Ethan Hunt on Mission Impossible. We will hear the instructions abbreviated one time and then step back because those instructions will explode in 20 seconds. That's my species, Right? But it's as if Peter is on to us. When we come back to this series in First Peter chapter 3, after sweating our way through six verses to the wives, it's time for the men. Do we get six verses? Doesn't look like it. We get one. And it's verse 7. It's like Peter's on to this bullet point thing. The brevity thing. He says in verse 7, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Looks like that's all we get. Something real brief. I want to tell you a few things about this verse before we dive in. First of all, it's how it, the opening line, it says, you husbands, and this next phrase is so important. It says, in the same way, uh, us and it, it, it means in the same way. In other words, I've been, I've been carving a path through the woods of this argument, through the woods of this discussion, Peter says, and he says, husbands, don't bail on me now. You need to pay attention too. I want you to follow my argument that I've been laying out in the chapter 2 and 3 of my epistle, if I can put it that way. I want you to see the trajectory we are on. We're still talking, husbands, about the importance of submission within the context of relationships, whether it's the government, back in verse 13, whether it is your employer, beginning in verse 18 or whether we're talking to the wife, even to an unsaved husband that she has to navigate life with. He's saying, husbands, stay with me as I write this. Keep tuning in. But it's here, though we're still on that trajectory of, a, of submission and authority, it's here that Peter does a little twist. we have got to watch this. I agree with Wayne Grudem and, and Dr. Schreiner and their excellent commentators commentaries on 1 Peter, that while Peter is continuing this discussion, he is not going to continue with the same texture, he's not calling to submission to wives as an authority to the husbands. No, as Dr. Schreiner is clear to point out, he is for the first time in this discussion addressing the authority. He didn't address the government directly. He didn't address the employers or the masters directly. But now he's directing these comments to a source of authority and it's the husbands. say, well, what's in the same way? If he's doing that flip-flop now from talking to those that are are to submit to those who are in a a place of authority in God's plan, what does it mean in the same way? In the same way means, listen carefully, the same battery that's driving a submission to a godless government, that's driving a submission to a, a cultural workplace of a godly environment, or even to a an unsaved spouse, an unsaved husband. Uh, the same thing that's driving that. It, it, it's a common battery that must also drive the husband and what Peter has to say to them now. What is that? Well, let's just be reminded this of this important theme that... Peter has been drawing on way back in chapter 1, verses 14 to 17, as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the holy one who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it's written you shall be holy for I am holy. Watch verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves, next two words are key, in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And you might remember when we were studying that phrase and that verse and that paragraph, that that is is what drives the believers, especially even uh, uh, disciples who are being persecuted because they are believers. This is what drives them. It's not a reaction against those who are persecuting me for Christ's sake. I see something that my persecutors can't see. And it's the Lord Himself. There's a living, real awareness of God in my moments. It's called the fear of the Lord. It's an awareness and an awe. That's not just in 1 Peter 1, verses 14-17, through but Peter will draw on that very reality of the proximity and the presence and the awe of God as he encourages these wives in chapter 3, verses 1-6. through six. Remember this? In verse 2 it says, They, your unsaved husbands, observe your... That's the Christian wife. And he, he describes their behavior with two words. Chaste and respectful. But that word respectful, as we saw last week, is the word, uh, it comes from the word where we get our word phobia. It's the fear it's still reaching back to chapter 1, verse 17, an awareness of God's awesome presence in your moments. That's what keeps you in the game in the worst of situations. And before he finishes with what we can call the ladies' section here, he appeals to that yet again in verse 4. He says, as you, as you order your life, what drives you is the hidden person of the heart. It's imperishable. It's the quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. And then here's an awareness of God's presence again, which is precious in the sight of God in those moments where you feel vulnerable. So, what's the driving battery that makes this uh, for the husbands? Hey, you guys pay attention too. It's this. What I'm getting ready to tell you, husbands, has to be driven by the same awareness of the presence of God in your moments and in your home. That's the battery through this section. And then he says, now here's what I want to say to you husbands. He's writing, I think, predominantly to Christian husbands. I'll make that argument in a moment. He's saying, guys, I know you don't like instructions, so let's see if we can keep this simple for you. You ready? And what Peter does in verse 7 is he builds two arguments hanging off of just two simple participles. It's the concept of living and the concept of granting. You see it in verse 7. It says, live with your wife." That's a participle. It's an ongoing action. And then it says, and show her or grant her honor. Those are the two participles. If you can hold on to those two words, you'll understand this whole verse. And so here's... Here's my challenge to you this morning as we get into this verse. And I'm talking not just to the men, I'm talking to the women, I'm talking not just to the married, but to the singles. What he's doing here is he is writing to Christian men that they only have two things to remember about their wife. Number one, this is it. It's not complicated. But it's work. Number one, study her constantly study her constantly look at verse 7 again you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman one of my professors when I was in college he was an Old Testament professor now serves here in Michigan as an Old Testament professor at Puritan Theological Seminary on the other side of the state. His name is Dr. Michael Barrett, one of the best teachers I've ever sat under. He's written many books. He and his wife Sandy are just precious. And uh, I, I would hope to have him in someday to speak here. But he's an avid hunter. He has been for most of his life. And I went up just earlier this morning to the website for Puritan Theological Seminary to see the most recent picture of my old professor. And there he was. And I read his bio. You know what it says at the end of his bio? After it says all his stuff he's accomplished and written and all that? It says his hobbies include hunting and thinking about hunting. Period. That's it. I love that. And it's true about Him. It's true for some of you too when it comes to hunting or fishing. If you are not hunting or fishing in this moment, you're at least thinking about it. I love that. And it's that way about your hobbies too, ladies. Whether it might be something outdoors, whether it's an athletic event, whether it is uh, creating beautiful things or tasty things, or whether it's teaching. All of us have a lane that we enjoy. We call them hobbies. Some of you... We'll call them uh, perhaps vehicles or automobiles, or it might be your team, or it might be what are the markets doing this afternoon, what's the hot topic on ESPN, what's going on in politics, how about Bass Pro Shop? All of us have a thing, and listen, and that's okay. And if we're not doing our thing, we're, we're probably still thinking about our thing in those moments. But what Peter is going to do now is this. If you get your thing in your mind right now, whether it's hunting, fishing, or something else, what is your distraction, your relaxation thing that you like to do and where you like to do it? You got that in your mind? Because men, however excited you are in this moment focusing on the distraction I just introduced to you, Peter's going to introduce you to a topic that must eclipse your thing. As much as you're drawn to your thing, if you're married, there's one that always trumps your thing. And it's your wife. You husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way. Can I give you two pastoral nudges here? Two pastoral nudges under this study her constantly. The first pastoral nudge is this. You've got to make the commitment, man. This won't just happen. Like I could tell you, go study physics at the University of Michigan at the graduate level. Now some of you just put a smile on your face because you'd love to do that, or you have done that. But for the rest of us, the hoi polloi, that would take so much of a commitment to even get started. I can't even pronounce the name of the textbook I'd have to have. It would take an effort. You know what, when Peter says, husbands, Dwell with your wives in an understanding way. He's saying, I have an assignment for you guys. You have to make the commitment to study the details of everything about your wife. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. And don't just close the book and say you did it after that and you did it one time. No, it's it's dwell with them in an understanding way. If you just read the bullet points of your wife emotionally, spiritually, physically and socially and all that, you're just getting knowledge. you're just getting started. You've got to figure out, how does all that stuff now that you've learned about her and, and by the way, that's a lifelong study how do they interact with each other? How do they come together to bring about her, her affections and her choices? It's quite an undertaking. And there's a very big end game to this, Peter's going to say. My first pastoral nudge to you is, you've got to make the commitment, man. Now I like to tell you every once in a while that as I, as I press into these commentaries, as I, as I study this every week, every once in a while, a commentator will get real pastoral in what he says about a, a concept. It's as if he pushes his chair away from the desk, pulls out of the Greek for a while, and he says... This is what it means. And this week, one of those commentators that did it beautifully was Dr. Wayne Grudem in his commentary on 1 Peter. And I just want his words to speak for themselves. He's reflecting on these words. He's he's reflecting on this commitment you need to make to study your wife, men. And he writes this, The knowledge Peter intends here may include any knowledge that would be beneficial to the husband-wife relationship. Like what? Knowledge of God's purposes. And knowledge of God's principles for marriage. Knowledge of the wife's desires, the wife's goals, and the wife's frustrations. Knowledge of her strengths. Knowledge of her weaknesses. In the physical realm, in the emotional realm, and even in the spiritual realm. And then he says this, A husband who lives according to such knowledge will greatly enrich his marriage relationship, yet such knowledge can only be gained through the regular study, not just of the wife, but the regular study of God's Word and regular unhurried times of fellowship together. End quote. I told you he got pastoral. And he is on point. Peter's calling us out, man. Our favorite lane, our favorite thing, beyond any hobby, beyond any relaxation, beyond any retreat in our mind, it must run to the wife that God has given to us. Studying everything and then coordinating and correlating what we've studied with how she responds to life. I see beads of sweat on some of your foreheads, then. You see mine? See, so I have to do that? If you're a believer, yes. See, so I don't want to do that. It's too much work. Uh, I don't enjoy what I know already. Okay, so I want to try to help you because we're a full service church here and as one of the pastors, I want to tell you how you cannot do this. Ready? If you plan on not following what God says through Peter's pen, men, here's how you do it. I want to help you out. First of all, make sure you're absent all the time. Absent. You know you can be in the same room and still be absent? You can be in the same piece of property and still be absent? Do whatever you need to to be absent from your wife. You can blame work You can even blame ministry. Just make sure you're absent, that's all. You can do this. Don't just plan on being absent. Plan on being tired a lot. Get real tired. Uh, Be tired and just blame it on work and you don't have much energy for her when you get home. Just close your eyes a little bit. Act slightly disinterested and very sleepy. Just act that way. You won't attract much conversation. If that doesn't sell it, then stay up super late playing video games or streaming detective movies or shoot 'em up movies. Just stay up late. Definitely bring stress into your life and be tired. So all you have to do is be absent and be tired. You don't have to do this. Oh, if that's not enough, I'll give you some more techniques here. Um, always be distracted. Even when, especially when you're in the same room with your wife. Be distracted with your phone. Keep it out. Even though the most important person in the room with you right now is not the one on your phone, it's the one in in front of you. Keep looking down. Stay with the video games and stay with the Netflix. Just be distracted. You say you need more help? I'd like to help you. Be disloyal to your wife. That's a way to fight against what Peter's prescribing here. What do you mean, disloyal? Have guy friends more important to you than her. Allow your affections to fantasize and run after other women in the name of work and ministry. And definitely give in to the gravity of pornography. Because that'll help not do what Peter's saying here. So you're absent, you're tired, you're distracted, you're disloyal. And they'll give you another thing you can do. Um Uh, just assume that, okay, if i got to obey Peter, I have to do it accidentally. I'm not going to plan for it. I'm only going to do it when a crisis calls for it. So live the accident life. Or, if you want more help, be arrogant, men. Look down your nose at women and your wife is one of those. That'll kill verse 7. A couple more suggestions. Well, if you're forced to read a marriage book or a discipleship book on godly men and discipline, only read and parse those books and passages and for the sake of argument with your buddy that you're reading it with. But don't bring it home to your wife. Don't talk to her about that. There's a couple more ways you can fail at what Peter's saying in 1 Peter 3. Verse 7. Be a legalist. Be a legalist. Study the passages that teach about the order, the creative order in the home where the the husband's the head and the wife must submit and then, then use that to badger your wife. Do that definitely so that you can manipulate her. And one more way you can do this if you don't want to do verse 7 is believe that you only have to do it once and then you're done with it for life. Have one good conversation. One and done, they say at Duke, right? With basketball. And so it is with many marriages and churches like ours. I went to one retreat together. I read one thing together with her. We had one season where we were praying together and talking about the sermon. But that's, must, that's all it takes. Now, I speak as a fool. Do you understand that to not do what Peter is prescribing in verse 7, I just listed off nine ways you can fail at it. We can summarize it all in one. One do nothing be yourself in your marriage there's no greater curse you can call down on a marriage and tell the husband to just be himself cuz left to ourselves we'll be absent tired distracted disloyal accident accidentally driven arrogant and legalistic and simplistic peter says no you husbands in the same way knowing that The Lord is in your moments and in your living room fully with all of His resplendent glory. You're aware of that and it brings awe to you. In light of that, live with your wives in an understanding way. When we understand that and that assignment, then you got a homework assignment. You have to have regular dates with your spouse. And you call them Husband. You say, what's regular? Once every decade? No, we're going to try to be a little more frequent. Once a year? No, you're getting warmer, but you're still frozen. I would say there needs to be private pockets between just the two of you every day somehow. And then a meaningful date out at least once a week. Not to gripe, your assignment on that date is to study, to ask questions. See, man, what's that going to look like? I'm not going to read this to you right now because of time, but if you jot down first oh I'm sorry, Song of Solomon chapter four, verses one through five. and you'll know in two of those verses why I'm not going to choose to read it right now, um, particularly the final ones. You're going to see the spouse describing lots of stuff about his bride. He's going to comment on, listen, her neck. He's going to comment about her teeth. He's going to comment about her temples. He's going to comment about her lips. He's even going to comment about her breath. I'll stop there. (laughs) Suffice it to say, if he has her neck, her teeth, her temples, her lips, her breath down, he has the rest of her down too. And that's just demonstrating the physical study. You study your wife emotionally, socially, and spiritually. So, you only have two things to do. The first one is study her constantly. You say, what does that mean? Well, first, make the commitment. It's going to take a commitment. But secondly, it means not just make the commitment, it means treasure the contrast. Treasure the contrast. Because guess what? As you study her physically, emotionally, socially, and spiritually, guess what you're going to find out? In psychology, they call it the aha experience. What does that mean? It means, I just discovered something. Yeah, you will. You'll discover. You want to know what you're going to discover? That she's not you. Praise the Lord she's not you. It says here, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. So what are we, what are we talking about here? We'll say more. But as you study, it says here that you're studying someone who's a vessel. It says someone weaker, and some of your translations say, as with, as with a weaker vessel. It's an important word to keep in the translation, vessel. Because a vessel is created. Vessels don't just happen out of chaos. A vessel has a creator, see And he's saying, your wife, she's precious. She has been created by the Creator in His image. Just like you, husband. But she's not you. She's been brought by the Creator to you and the way He's created her to compliment you beautifully. What Peter's doing is he's throwing an elbow at us, guys, and he's saying, stop! Acting in your marriage as if you're not a created vessel, too. You're just as created as she is. She has needs of weakness, and I think primarily physically we're talking about here, especially in the context of suffering. Keep the big picture at Peter's painting here. Where she needs, with all of her strengths, she needs to be protected. She's a vessel like you, husband. Paul uses this same particular Greek word in 2 Corinthians 4-7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. The Gospel. In earthen vessels. You're both vessels. You both have strengths and weaknesses. I had a Bible teacher in college. Another Bible teacher. His name was Dr. Walter Fremont. And he taught some of the, the family classes. And I remember one day he got up in class and he was looking at this verse and he says... So, um, yeah, you're both vessels, right? But you're not the same kind of vessels. You have the same goal. A vessel contains a liquid, a fluid, or something like that. You have the same goal, but you're definitely not the same. He says, guys, you're a Coca-Cola can. An empty one at that. Totally empty, and therefore, people discard a Coke can... they'll they'll, they'll, they'll squeeze it and bend it and stomp on it, throw it at their friend and leave it in the street. And you know what? You're still okay because you're a dude and that's what you do. You're just a Coke can. Glory in that. But your wife is an English porcelain vase. And you wouldn't treat her the way you do a Coke can because it it would devastate her. Coke can's going to be fine. I like that. This word for weaker here is, is a description that's only used a couple times in the New Testament, and it has to be defined by its context. But it's the same word we find in First Thessalonians five fourteen. Help the weak, those who have a need physically, or even emotionally, or spiritually. Peter's writing to husbands whose wives are going through persecution like the rest of the church. And they need a safe place. You say, well, God's their safe place. Yes, and God gave them their husband. You, husband, are the expression of that safe place. As Paul would say in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Back in verse 7, it says, "is an interesting phrase here, since she is a woman. So, what does that mean? That's, he's changing words on us. And as I believe Dr. Wayne Grudem is correct, it's a particular Greek word that means um, her femaleness. The beauty of her the distinction of her femaleness in God's creation. God's created them to thrive under the protection of a husband if God brings them together in marriage. You say, well, this woman's a weakling. No, we didn't say that. would never say that. And neither would Peter. Remember our six verses last week? We talked about a woman of strength that God paints with brush strokes of Grace. I'll tell you what, this lady that we saw, this woman we saw in verses 1 through 6, is anything but weak. See, how strong is she? She is strong in God's grace, so much so that she can even bring an unsaved tyrant husband to his knees in repentance, possibly. But she needs a safe place, a Christian husband. Maybe that's why Paul would say in Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. So the first thing he says is study her constantly. And he only gives you one more thing, men. You ready for the second one, the last one? Number two, lead her spiritually. Lead her spiritually. Spiritually. While I keep talking about my college experience today, I might as well tell you about a really awful experience that lasted four months, three months, in the fall of 1985. First semester in college for me. I was a freshman. Did okay in high school. I wasn't a huge standout, but um, did okay with academics. And I met a class that every freshman has to take called History of Civilization. And I immediately went numb just looking at the syllabus. Great teacher, gifted teacher, but he would just give us so much information, and if that weren't enough, we'd have to read chapters each week on this huge book, and I just wasn't a history person, and I was blown away by the workload, and if that weren't enough, after we got all this information from the lectures, all this information from the book, something was bound to happen every time, and it always did, and that's that there was going to be an assignment. There was going to be a test. An assignment follows every good piece of instruction. He's told us to study her constantly and He doesn't let you leave it there. He now gives you an, asti- an assignment and that's to lead her spiritually. Men, the assignment is to lead your wife spiritually. Stop, men, following your wives spiritually. You say, well, they know more than I do. Well, they get to reading. Get to praying. Get up. Go to bed at night. Get up. Get some coffee. Get your Bible open. Do that for a couple years and a couple decades. She'll love you for it and follow you with joy. And relaxed shoulders. Husbands, can I say it again? Stop following your wives spiritually. You write the check for the gift of the church, so to speak. You don't have to do that. But take an initiative. You read the Bible. You pray. You be the first to not only go to corporate gatherings of prayer and preaching and men's ministry, but rework things that have to happen in the phone so your wife can go. Take that initiative, men. That's what we do. That's the assignment. Look at the latter half of verse 7 again. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Well, wow. If you're going to lead her spiritually, you need to realize two things. Number one, you see it in this verse. Here it is. You are on the same journey. You are on the same journey as your wife. Now, work with me here. Remember, this is a letter written by Peter to his readers in a Gentile uh, region with Jewish believers sprinkled in there. And this letter is being read publicly, and you're the husband listening to it being read for the first time. And in English, we can read this in about 20 minutes. And you're listening to you know, what we have in Christ and how so- solid our eternity is and, and confirmed, and then how we're supposed to be holy and living in the awareness of the fear of the Lord. And then you hear how we're supposed to submit to government, even godless government. We're supposed to submit in the commerce and the employment realm in a godless culture that's opposed to the Gospel. And husband, you're listening, and then he turns the corner and gives Jesus as the ultimate example. And you're just caught up in this as you're hearing Peter's words read to you. And the next six verses absolutely floor you, husbands. You hear what's written to Christian wives who are in the same room with you as you're hearing this letter written, to Christian wives who are in a place of vulnerability as it is just being a disciple of Jesus and in some cases, an unsaved husband. You're listening to that. I promise, you're not sitting there in those six verses of chapter 3 saying, when do I get mine? No. With every verse of chapter 3 husband you're feeling the burden and the load on your shoulders you listen to what the women are told and instructed and graced to do and i think we can make the argument that your verse in 1st peter is not just verse 7 you're started up back at verse 1 cuz look what a wife has to navigate if you don't obey verse 7 what keeps you going The fact that she is a fellow heir. It says to literally assign her honor. It doesn't say that she's worthy of all honor. It says you assign it to her. You say, you don't know my wife's idiosyncrasies. No, I don't. You assign her honor. You say, she's not perfect. You assign her honor. It means you fix a high price there. You're not doing this to build up her self-esteem. No, no, no. You are doing this to punctuate God's esteem of your wife. She is a fellow heir of the grace of life. She's a co-inheritor with you. As Paul said in Romans 8, 16-17, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we, men and women, are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with Him, we'll be glorified with Him. And he says again in Ephesians 3, verse 6, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. Peter's saying it goes for your wife too. She's in this room hearing this letter read. She's part of a church. She's a fellow heir. Grudem says this speaks of your wife's fellow spiritual privilege. Same as yours. You have no advantages over your wife in Christ. And Schreiner points out that and you're not only on level ground, but you're moving towards the exact same destiny. You're working with her, men. Not against her. If I were to lay a rope across the front of this auditorium and tell uh, a husband to come up to the rope and his wife, Often what will happen just by instinct is the wife will go to one end of the rope, husband to the other end, and they'll start playing tug of war because, well, that's what they do on every issue. Tug of war. He's saying, husbands, put down your end of the rope and go around to her side of the rope and join your hands to hers. You're on the same journey. You're working towards the same goals. She's a fellow heir. She's elect like you, verse 2 of chapter 1. She's persecuted like you, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. She has the hope. That nothing can take away from her in the Gospel, chapter 1, verse 13, like you. She, like you, is on a journey towards holiness, chapter 1, verse 15. I'm sorry. Maybe I'm making a wrong assumption here. So let me just ask you, husband, and you too, wife. You are joint heirs, right? There has come a point in your life where you have repented of your sin Confessed your sin to Jesus. You've asked Him to forgive you of the sin and you've, you've embraced the free offer of eternal life as a result of His death, burial, and resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand. You've done that, right? God's opened your eyes and giving you the ability to repent and believe, right? I don't want to take anything for granted here. If you haven't done that, you can become joint heirs today. By calling on Him, confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Hmm. It's quite a scene in this verse, isn't it? Husbands, she gets such attention from you, not because of what she deserves, but what she received. Grace. Husbands, she's not perfect. But in Jesus, she's being perfected. Husbands, she might be complex. Yes. But she's also being conformed to the image of your Savior. John Piper, in his little book, it's a good book on marriage, called This Momentary Marriage. I love that phrase. He writes these words, what women rightly long for is spiritual and moral initiative from their husbands. Not spiritual and moral domination. Are we clear on that? Peter couldn't be any clearer. You say, what if my wife's not saved yet? Well, my answer to that is this only intensifies then your studying and your leading. Because your pursuit of her and your example of a Christian Will even become more urgent. What do we realize? Well, first of all, you're on the same journey, but secondly, husbands, you better end up on this one. You realize that you are in desperate need of prayer. I, I used to come to the end of 1 Peter 3, verse 7, and find it a cozy verse. Oh, sweet. Isn't this sweet? And we have, this is written. To the husband and the wife to pray together and 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 they don't want to mess that up. And then I realized the verse isn't saying that. Like at all. The prayer's here and we hit it we go into the passive voice. This is talking just about the husband's prayer life. You say why? Because husbands at this point in the in the assignment and in Verse seven: at this point, the husbands need desperate prayer because the task that Peter is prescribing is well-nigh impossible in their own strength. See, what do you mean by that? I mean, where are we in this epistle so far? What was coming before verse seven, and including verse seven for these three chapters? The husband has to endure what he doesn't enjoy, and that's trials. The husband has to study what he might not understand. That's his wife. The husband needs to protect what he might forget. And that's his weaker vessel. And the husband must admit that his pride is a present danger. She's a joint heir. Treat her as such. Old Warren Weersby's right. He says here's how, here's how it's supposed to work out in marriages. The husband is the thermostat. And the wife, the thermometer—you get that out of whack with men or wives, husbands or wives. There's gonna be problems in the temperature of that home. You see, when a husband lives for himself, and studies himself, and exalts himself, and disciples himself—basically, Peter's saying it in this verse. He might as well pray to himself. He's facing a task he must have my help on and my grace, Peter says. Again, Paul gives the spirit that drives men to pray. In First Timothy 2, verse 8, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. It's quite a verse, guys. We thought we were going to have it easy today after last week. I have the joy right now of going through a book with several men in our church, just privately, in meetings or lunches, Disciplines of a Godly Man by R. Kent Hughes. Listen to Pastor Hughes describe what it means to be a husband. The man who sanctifies his wife understands that this is his divinely ordained responsibility. Is my wife more like Christ because she is married to me? Or is she more like Christ in spite of me? Has she shrunk from her likeness because of me? Do I sanctify her or hold her back? Is she a better woman because she is married to me? Wow, what no questions. And so Peter's just like, I've got to talk to the guys now. Let's see if they can get something real simple. Study her constantly and lead her spiritually. After all, Ecclesiastes nine, 9 tells us, enjoy, wife, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which God has given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life. So, Mr. Hunt... Do you accept this mission? Are there any questions? Except you're not Ethan Hunt, men. You're you. And this assignment, this mission, will not self-destruct in three minutes. And let me just say something to all men and all women under the sound of my voice. You know what you got right now with, because of this verse? You have a prayer list for our church men and our church teens, and our young men, and our elderly men. And you have two points on your prayer list for each one of them. Even the ones that aren't married or no longer married, that they would still have the posture of a heart like this as gospel people. Lord Jesus, thank you for showing us men in front of everyone what you showed the women in front of everyone last week. That we are not left to just figure it out and navigate the rough ride home in a hostile country of God-haters and Creator-rejecters. No, you speak to every, every detail. Even right down to the most private parts of our lives. Our marriages. Thank you for the Gospel that leaves no blank unfilled in our pilgrimage.